Hello, and welcome to Geek Between the Lines, the podcast that explores compelling ideas and some of our favorite geeky properties. I'm Brittany. And I'm Chris. And this week we are continuing with our Mockingjay read-through, exploring chapter 18. Chris, can you give us a recap? Mm-hmm. Katniss moves into more advanced training in the block, but becomes wary when she starts seeing PETA drilling as well. York signs her and Johanna up for the exams to gain clearance for field duty, where Katniss is tested on her ability to take orders. She passes her test and is assigned to Squad 451, a special sharpshooter squad led by Boggs and with Gale and Finnick as well. In command, she and Finnick recognize the similarities between the capital defenses they'll face and the game makers control of the Hunger Games arenas, but manage to keep their anxiety over it a secret. Hamish tells them that Johanna failed her exam when they flooded the block, so Katniss brings her a bundle of pine needles to remind her of home, and swears to her that she'll kill Snow. Plutarch tells them that their mission is to be a filmable star squad, frustrating everyone that they won't see as much action. Katniss says goodbye to her family, and the star squad arrives in the capital, while Katniss secretly plans to steal Bog's advanced hollow map. When a squadmate is killed by a misidentified pod, PETA arrives as a replacement, shocking the squad and convincing Katniss that Coin wants her dead. Yikes. Yikes, indeed. Well, why don't we go into our striking moments? What did you bring? Yeah, so one that I had was how Katniss and Finnick so easily are able to understand each other and understand the situation when they make the joke about the 76th annual Hunger Games. Mm -hmm. Not only are they able to make that joke together because they both see it immediately, but they also are able to kind of be savvy in that moment in passing it off as something that they are confident about. Not that that makes them more vulnerable or more anxious, but instead something that, you know, they've already done before that, that, that for them is no big deal because they don't want to be taken off the team. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I just think it's such a great moment between them of how victors generally can understand each other really well because they've been through that and how her and Finnick have had such similar experiences throughout this book that they're really on the same same wavelength. Yeah, it's particularly interesting considering that they were disappointed that they're in this propo star squad Mm -hmm. because you would think after seeing what the capital will be like in terms of all of these pods with mutts or different lethal attacks, they would be relieved. They wouldn't want to go in because they've already had to experience that you Mm -hmm. know now twice and watch it countless times but i guess it speaks to how angry they are yeah and the determination they have to try to overcome the anxiety that they are feeling the the worries the triggers that are happening there and put that aside pretend it like it's not happening so that they can continue into going back into, into something like that for the possibility of killing Snow. I mean, I guess there could maybe be an idea of them feeling like we have been tested and proved mm-hmm. against attacks like these, whereas District 13 is mainly doing simulations with peacekeepers and things like that. Like, they have no idea what this is actually like. Yeah. Uh, So maybe they think that probably a lot of them are just going to die and it's, you know, they need to make sure that the capital falls. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. It's really interesting. Yeah, because I feel like 
someone like Beatty would not want to go back in. Mm-hmm. You know, like even even if he was fit to the level where he could, right? I don't think that he would want to. You know, totally. <laughs> but obviously not the same level of bad things happened to him after he won his game. Says mm-hmm. Katniss, Johanna, Finnick. Hmm. Yeah. Um, I had a couple other smaller ones. Uh, one, the moment where Plutarch says that he wants Peta and Katniss to be filmed together. <laughs> Not kissing, necessarily. Necessarily. Uh, and yeah, that necessarily is so telling mm-hmm. of clearly that is his intention. That is what he would want if he could get it. And again, it shows the extent to which Katniss's allies are still objectifying her, still utilizing her as a tool, and how... And Peta. Yeah, and Peta as well, absolutely. And also how she is able to just walk away from that conversation, (laughs) showing her own power has increased, her ability to respond to that has increased in really important ways too. Absolutely. And it just shows that when he said that there's going to be a wedding and she was just Mm -hmm. horrified, it's because of this. She yes. wasn't overreacting. She wasn't jumping to wild conclusions. Like, no, this is uh, this is right along that train of thought. Absolutely. Yes, exactly. Yeah. And then my last striking moment was when she describes how she makes a joke about Gail being too camera ready. Mm-hmm. And, and I just think that that's a really great teasing for one. Uh, but also it comes in not in the middle of a conversation. Like, it's not like there's a conversation going and this is part of that conversation. Katniss's narration mentions this joke, which also implies that the joke is important to Katniss. She thinks it's funny, Exactly. (laughs) She thinks it's funny. She enjoys her own humor and that it's, yeah, it's significant to her when she describes the things that she's going through to also mention how she does this ribbing to Gail, which I think is just, it's its so great because, again, it's a way of using her narration, her first-person narration, as a way of illustrating her character in really, really interesting ways. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. What about you? What are your striking moments? One is that I think it's so ridiculous that they go by last names for League 1 and 2. Right. <laughs> it's just like, shows how, I don't know. The military is ridiculous in a lot of ways, but something like this is just so impractical. But no, it's protocol. Yeah, absolutely. Especially with Katniss thinking about how she wanted to get to know the insects more, giving them names with Fercaster and Pollux and getting to know them. And then now she's in this unit and she is okay not really having those names or personality with them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it's it's uh, an interesting illustration of that militarized culture. Yeah, absolutely. Speaking of which, I was thinking about them wanting to skip that military haircut for her mm-hmm. because, you know, they wanted her to have her iconic braid. When Plutarch is asking her about that, she just shrugs to communicate that her hair length is a matter of complete indifference to her, mm-hmm. which was just really striking to me because it's such a departure from book one Katniss mm. with her putting her hair in its braid, yeah. right? This was a piece of 
identity for her. Being able to dress back in her own clothes that she feels comfortable in, putting her hair the way that her hair should be for her, you know, and at the point she's at, she just doesn't care anymore, you know? Yeah, that's a great connection. I didn't even think about that, but you're absolutely right. It does show so much change for her priorities. Yeah. And like, just I think her sense of self. Yeah. As more and more has been done to her, taken away from her. Asked of her. Asked of her. People trying to use her. And seeing loss. Not that she was close with anybody in District 8 in in that infirmary, but still seeing and talking to some of those people and then knowing they all died Mm. in this really horrible way. And I'm sure also her being in the hospital and on and off sedation and things like that. Yeah, and and having to wear this District 13 military uniform. Mm-hmm. Like, just so many of the things that were part of her identity, including District 12 being completely destroyed, you know, are just not there anymore. Yeah, and I think that connects to that anger and determination that mm-hmm. we were talking about. And frankly, it shows the unhealthy aspects of that where if you are only motivated by this desire to kill even her sense of identity and yeah care for what her looks say about her has gone to the wayside she also is embracing this violence in a way that she hadn't in the past Mm -hmm. the fact that she's disappointed that they're not in more of the quote-unquote action it's not action it's war and killing yeah So, yeah, I think the completely narrow focus of her goal of taking out snow, of toppling the capital, which, yes, is revenge-based, but it's not only revenge-based. It's not just somebody who did something to her. You know, like, if more than one person was able to survive the Hunger Games, well, more than she and Peta. Like, if Kato had survived, she wouldn't have wanted to go take out revenge on her, totally, him, yeah. you know. So, I don't think that it's it's only that. I think it's, he is the dangerous tyrant. Mm-hmm. And he has to be taken out, is more it. I mean, I think that there's a little, some of her, her hatred for him is fueled by that. But, yeah, I think that her desire to take him out and end this war and change this terrible oppressive system has overridden other aspects of herself yeah um, in really stark and also sad ways Mm -hmm. because in that i think she's losing a bit of her compassion too i mean it's obviously she's never gonna lose it completely but she has less of it than Maybe before. Yeah, or at least she's or at least listening to people. it less. Mm. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Mm-hmm. It's a great point. And the last one I was kind of thinking about is how they are shooting these battle propos with Katniss alternating between using a gun and a bow mm-hmm. because they don't want to entirely lose the Mockingjay, but they want to downgrade her role to foot soldier, mm. which I just think is really interesting and also kind of amusing because it's like, how could you possibly think Katniss using a gun in these 
propose would downgrade her to the rebels of Penem. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's like she's already been this mocking jay before you took it and made propose with it and then once you did that you elevated it even more so and so it's just it's kind of funny that they think that they could do that <laughs> yeah that they think they can toe this line between oh we can still use her as the mocking jay but will weaken her in these ways that she's not a threat to us. And mm-hmm. that's just not how symbols work. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. It's like, you're trying to say that she's not in control, but like, she's never been in control, right? Mm-hmm. That's part of the point. She has done something new. She has broken out of the shackles. You know, she has done these things and that's why she is inspiring. It's not because she had some official position of power you know and so it's just like it shows how the the people who are are making these calls (laughs) coin um (laughs) don't really understand why she is inspirational and how she's inspirational and that the rebels aren't fighting for katniss Mm -hmm. she is helping give them more inspiration to continue facing death every day but they're doing it for their communities. Mm-hmm. And yeah, they don't seem to get that. <laughs> <laughs> Miss the point. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but what do we move into our next section, which is from another point of view? And this is where we look at a scene or this chapter through a character other than Katniss. Yeah, so I wanted to talk about Hamish because Hamish mentions how he and Beatty are not going, so he stays behind. And I I wonder what it's like for him to be in that moment, because similar to Beatty, I can imagine him being glad that he's not being put back in the arena at his age, you mm-hmm. know, 25 years later after he was in it as a child, and as he's still, yeah, dealing with recovery from his alcoholism and, and you know, everything else that's happening. And whatever the health effects of that alcoholism would have on his own current state. Exactly, yeah. But he's also seeing these other victors go. And I wonder if there's also an element of him staying and wanting to continue his mentor role to the extent that he can. Mm -hmm. That him staying behind means that he'll at least have the ability to advocate, continue to advocate for the victors and to be in strategy meetings and to provide his input in what those strategies are going to be. And yeah, maybe do so in ways that are going to be more protective of rebels or of victors or of other folks that the District 13 leadership might not care as much about as we see with them continuing to want to objectify Katniss and Peta. Yeah, I can imagine him kind of struggling with this in the same way that Katniss and Finnick are worried because what they're about to experience is similar to being in the Hunger Games as a tribute. He might also have worries that come with being a mentor and Mm -hmm. seeing what he could do within, as a small cog within the system that does not prioritize the well-being of the people that he cares about. So yeah, I just, I, I... wonder what that is like for someone like Hamish, who has lived most of the last 25 years as a mentor 
and has built those skills up in ways that have utilized his own intelligence and savviness when he used them because it sounds like Mm -hmm. he didn't every year but i can imagine him feeling the additional responsibility of doing whatever he can from district 13 to to still help them yeah yeah he's an interesting one because i feel like there could potentially be a reading of him that would be like hamich is too selfish and cares too much about his own life Mm. to really put himself at risk Mm. because we haven't really seen him put himself at risk like we have others Mm -hmm. right like Katniss or Finnick or Johanna or Peta or Sinna you know even Plutarch if he had been found out earlier he would have been executed in a very very terrible way Whereas Hamish, you know, he had to be there for, to be a mentor. So it, it was pretty easy for him to slip away and get to District 13. And then he's been in District 13. I think probably the thing that we see him doing that would put him, his life at the most risk would have been probably when he joined Katniss uh when Gail was being whipped yeah I was thinking that too and so so maybe maybe he would be willing in these certain ways and it's just because of his age and his health and his own skill set it's just doesn't make sense Mm -hmm. but I also wonder if it did make sense would he still you know I I, I don't know yeah Um, it's a good question yeah, and I, I think also maybe he wants to stay behind because he doesn't trust District 13. Mm-hmm. And he also wants to be there and involved if they do win. Because it, it seems like he has a pretty good relationship with Plutarch mm-hmm. so that he can be involved in setting up this new government, you yeah. know, because like when he took over the the propose. <laughs> He has some different ideas. And, and he, he invites different ideas, mm-hmm. too. He would not want just Plutarch and Coin to decide everything for the new Penem. Exactly. Um, so in that way, it would be smart. And then there's also the potential, because like he was not in the meeting, Squad 451 meeting, because he was with Johanna. Mm-hmm. And I wonder if like we had mentioned before, like if he's seen her own symptoms of addiction and maybe he wants to be there to make sure she doesn't figure out how to get more morphling and overdose or, you know, yeah. something like that from his own experiences with addiction. Yeah, absolutely. You know, he could maybe see himself as someone who can stay back in District 13 to protect the Johannas and Annies and others who aren't going out and fighting um, mm-hmm. when Katniss and Gale and Finnick and now Peta are gone. Uh, and maybe he also wanted to help Peta still um, until yeah. Peta left. So yeah, I, I think that examining his, what his possible rationales were for, for staying can provide some, some interesting insight. Totally, yeah. Who's your perspective that you want to talk about? Well, one that's 
kind of brief is Johanna. Mm. Because I was thinking about her and just the rage she must feel at not being able to go. Mm-hmm. I mean, obviously she's going through a lot from her PTSD, but she's been rebellious for years and her loved ones were killed for it. And she must want to go even more than Katniss does. Yeah. She got weaned off the morphine for this mm-hmm. reason. And so I was just thinking about how angry she must be and how extra angry she must be because the reason that she can't go is because of the capital and what they did to her, you know? Yeah. And knowing Katniss can go, mm-hmm. you know, they've, they've become friends through this experience, but I imagine she still feels some of that jealousy that she talked about before. Yeah. But oh, that moment with the pine leaves. Oh, such an amazing moment. Oh, I love that. Yeah. Oh, Katniss. That's a, you know, that shows her compassion. That shows her mm-hmm. thoughtfulness um, and the way that she can use empathy to help address what people are, what they need, mm-hmm. even if they don't explicitly say it themselves. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And then I was also thinking about PETA mm. because... He says, because Boggs goes to make a call, right? (laughs) Because he's there. And Peter says, it won't matter. The president assigned me herself. Which seems like he probably protested going himself. Yeah. Because probably he as well as Hamish. And it didn't matter. Mm -hmm. You know, they sent him anyway. And we already know that. He's not just a free person in District 13. And so I was thinking about how angry he also must be. Yeah. Because they are sending him into danger because of the flimsy justification of to heat up the propos. Mm -hmm. And it's just like so blatantly using him. And it just, yeah, I can imagine, I'm sure he wasn't thrilled with District 13 before, but maybe him being confined, him having to have handcuffs, him having to be guarded, like, he could probably see that there was logic for that, Mm -hmm. like, there were, you know, some good reasons for that, and they have actually helped him. Yeah. And then to have this be thrown on him. How is this different than what the Capitol did to me? Mm-hmm. Like, they're throwing me into combat when clearly I'm not ready for combat. They're making me a danger to other people around me. They're putting me with the person who is the biggest trigger for me mm-hmm. as I'm trying to regain my sense of self and my agency. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it, it must be awful. And it's just for entertainment, mm-hmm. right? I mean, it's not just supposed to be entertainment. It's, it's supposed to be inspiring the rebels or whatever, but like... But even that, that's manipulative. That's, oh, you know, absolutely. more of all of the ways that the capital framed the Hunger Games. Mm-hmm. And How do we make this more effective, mm-hmm. more engaging? How do we elicit the specific responses we want to? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And like, he is a very smart person. Mm-hmm. And he can understand some big picture things which we saw from book one him understanding how the capital uses people 
and him not wanting to be used that way. And so you know that he's putting these things together. And whether he understands that maybe he's being used as a personal assassin for Katniss or not, if he does, then he knows that he's being used as a weapon again, just like Snow used him as a weapon. Mm -hmm. And if he doesn't, still for the reason of making the propose more lively is really disgusting. And so it's, yeah, I was just thinking about how angry and disappointed he must be and probably how hopeless he must feel. Like, oh, so these are, these are the quote unquote good side that's fighting to bring the system down. Like nothing is ever going to get better if these are the people in charge, you know? Yeah. I was rescued from torture just to be further utilized. Um, Mm -hmm. Yeah. Absolutely. And I was also kind of wondering outside of that frustration and anger and depression he must feel in regards to that. Just wondering where he's at in regards to Katniss, because it has been a few more weeks since we last saw Peta, mm-hmm. at least interact with her in any way. And so, yeah, I'm just kind of wondering, like, is he also worried for her mm-hmm. being in combat? Is there any part of him that could be like, oh, m- if I can keep under control my flashbacks or uh, impulse to lash out or anything like that, maybe I could be of use to protect her, like like why he volunteered to go into the 75th Games, you know? Yeah. I wonder if there's any of that. I wonder if he remembers any of those feelings or thoughts before he volunteered. And if if he does, if remembering those thought processes would be, like, sad for him, mm. that he was in the place to be so sure of what he wanted to do um and how he wanted to give up his life you know yeah so yeah those are the things i was thinking about for him yeah yeah i mean Peta is going through so much here and katniss is is willfully avoiding that to the extent that she can because it yeah. hurts her too much mm-hmm. um but that means the narrative isn't as focused on it so He's a really great perspective to to think about. Yeah. Well, why don't we go into our happiest section of the show, (laughs) Touch Points. This is where we look at some things that are happening in the narrative and see where there are some parallels to our own world. Sure, yeah. I had a few of these, probably unsurprisingly. (laughs) First little small one is I just, when I was thinking about the training on the block, I kept thinking of like VR and video games that use virtual reality and stuff like that, where so much of the draw is feeling like you are in it and that it's completely real. It's completely immersive. Um, mm-hmm. And and yeah, I've, I've done VR a few times and I've never, playing other video games, experienced the same amount of stress reaction as I had in VR when there were enemies around. Mm. Because, yeah, looking around, actually seeing them, like, feeling like you're in a physical space and the way that you move is going to impact them, um, it just, it was a whole new level of immersion. I, I can see the utility of that in training, for sure. 
and unfortunately, I'm sure the military does in our world as well, uh, because <laughs> they are definitely training in VR. Um, I watched a documentary recently about how they were using VR to help cure PTSD or treat PTSD mm-hmm. in soldiers, so they could <laughs> cure yeah. is a strong word. <laughs> yeah, uh, so they could redeploy them, and of course. Uh, you know that's the very bare minimum of, of the way they use this. There's also the U.S. Army actually created a video game that came out in the early 2000s as a recruiting tool for the war on terror and oh joy yeah right yeah so so uh, there was a big deal uh, a couple of years ago when members of the US army's esports team would be streaming on <laughs> switch would be streaming on twitch and uh people would start going into the chat and asking questions like why is the military okay with genocide? And uh, <laughs> yeah, for question. Uh, yeah, other questions like that. So it became you know a hot button issue. But many people were also calling them out to say, okay, you're using entertainment, you're using video games as a recruiting platform, uh, mm-hmm. and yeah, the problems that come with that. Well, and it's disturbing in a, in a very different way. I think like you know people can play video games like first person shooter and stuff. But when it's on a screen, it, I imagine it feels very different and you're hitting a little button, mm-hmm. you know, on on your controller than if you're in a VR situation and it feels very much more like you're there and then you're holding something that looks like a gun. And I'm sure in, in a military case it would be that, but mm. a controller, you know, and yeah. it's just like... You're literally just practicing to kill human beings, mm-hmm. which is incredibly disturbing. Like, I know that's what the military is for. <laughs> I mean, and that's incredibly the- disturbing. The- theoretically, it's for uh, dissuading, mm-hmm. you know, but like, let's, let's be real. That's not what the training is geared at. And yeah. so it's just, yeah, let's, let's practice murdering people awesome (laughs) love that for us yeah i i had a couple other military oh i had one too yeah um Mm -hmm. one about how they mention that they want limited damage as they're going through the capital (laughs) yeah because they want to take the capital afterwards they want to be able to um utilize as many of the resources and things that are in the capital as they possibly can. I think that that highlights in a way how this is a civil war um, and how territory is treated in a civil war differently than it can be treated in invasions where uh, certainly some invasions are about you know, wanting access to land and resources and things like that, yeah. but not all of them. Um, and so we see since the uh, people have been criticizing imperialism, it's more let's just destroy things mm-hmm. rather than let's destroy people so that we can use their land and resources. Yeah, yeah. But, I mean, even like World War II, the Nazis would destroy libraries and things like that, mm-hmm. you know, that might threaten an idea of German national superiority and, and things like that. And then some groups will actually, who are being invaded, will also, you know, show the extent to which they are 
committed to the protection of their land. I think about the Russians in World War II, who, as they retreated from the advancing German military, they also burnt all of their crops and mm-hmm. they, they destroyed massive amounts of their own infrastructure. And they did this so that the Nazis would not have access to those. Their supply lines would be further stretched, um, especially as winter's coming along. And it was a very sound tactical move, but it's one of the reasons why the Soviet Union lost 50 times as many soldiers as the United States did in World War II. Mm-hmm. They lost 25 million soldiers. Or, not, I'm sorry, not soldiers, people, soldiers people. and civilians yeah. um, because of the massive destruction that was done to them and they did, it, you know, as a defense tactic. So, um, yeah, that idea of what your tactics are for the resources that are in the environment that the war is happening is uh, illustrative also of priorities and, and tensions there. Definitely. And then my last one was how with all of these characters who are frustrated that they aren't on the front lines in the action, you know, we see this this thing. It, it reminded me of how, you know, oftentimes soldiers have felt that way, that uh, soldiers who are really committed to, you know, whatever war, whatever whatever's happening, um, want to be in the middle of it. Uh, in, during the American Civil War, in the 1860s, California actually sent more troops to the Union Army's causes than any other state, even though the California was located literally across the country from most of the battlefields that were happening in the Civil War. And there was a, no- there was a few battalions that did ultimately travel across- back across the country to participate in some of those Eastern battles. But the vast majority of the California soldiers were instead tasked with things like protecting trade routes that would ensure that the gold coming out of California could continue to supply the Union Army, or fighting against indigenous groups that were also at war with the United States, or um, you know other kinds of things that they would protest, saying that they signed up to be a part of this war against the Confederacy, not these other things that they're tasked to do. Uh, which I just find fascinating. One unit even offered to give up their pay, like the equivalent of like $30,000, so that they could be sent, so that they would pay for their own transport to the Eastern Front. And Fascinating. Yeah, it's just, uh, you know, as someone who does not want to engage in any kind of military exercise, you know, <laughs> uh, it is really, really fascinating to hear that someone not only would just sign up for a war but would then want the most dangerous jobs that they could get mm-hmm. uh it's just uh yeah it's it's kind of mind-boggling and you know for for those who are real believers and those who do believe that there is a an important rationale uh either personally or societally for that war you know i guess that can be incentive for that and for me as someone in the united states i I can't imagine a war that i would feel that very that strongly about because most of the time we'd probably be at least in some way the aggressor (laughs) yeah yeah i think it also speaks to like ideas of valor and Mm -hmm. glory and Mm -hmm. things like that because if you think about it i mean protecting these supply chains you know so that people can the the union soldiers can get what they need to continue going you know and all of that like that is just as important as 
go being on the front line killing confederate soldiers right for the outcome of this war mm-hmm. uh, if not more important but it doesn't have the same glory it doesn't have the i fought them you know exactly face to face you know that that sort of um unfortunate uh, ideals of yeah. battle and i don't think katniss is having those ideals but i Agreed. think that there is that's also a way, reason why i criticize her right here in this chapter because she is so focused on what she can do as an assassin that she doesn't think about yeah could being the mockingjay be more effective for a war that will ultimately topple topple the capital and kill snow Mm -hmm. um you know why does it have to be her and that i think is selfishly personally motivated and yeah I, i i i don't see her stopping and thinking how can I actually best support this war if I believe in this war? But there are these personal stakes for her as well. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, I kind of wonder if part of her motivation here is that for so long she has been doing things that she doesn't want to do. Mm-hmm. That other people are telling her will help or that are necessary you know even before she got into the hunger games she didn't want to have to have this provider role for her entire family you know but she had to do it she stepped up because they would starve otherwise and so i feel like for her whole life or at least her life post her dad dying and her mom not being able to provide for them like She's just been doing things that other people want her to do or need her to do. Mm-hmm. And for her, like we were talking about bef- in the previous episode, if she can't really imagine her life post the fall of the Capitol, mm-hmm. if it does fall, she's not even planning for it. She's planning to get taken out, yeah. right? And so this is the last opportunity she has to do what she wants to do, to use her skills and her history, her desires to do something that she wants, to use her body how she wants to. And if she can't do that and she isn't taken out, yeah, I, I guess I can imagine her thinking that this is the last opportunity she has to do something that matters to her for her. And obviously for Pan Am as well, but sitting and watching on the sidelines for something that she inadvertently started and at great personal cost to herself. I'm, I'm not saying that I think it's right, yeah. but I, I can understand that. Yeah, absolutely. And part of that is because we know so much about Katniss because she's so well written. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Well, what about you? What were your touch points? I had a small one also on military because I was thinking about the haircuts, right? Buzzing Mm. of hair and that used to erase identity. You know, like I know originally it was more used to reduce the chances of things like head lice and, you know, know, things when they didn't have the same ability for hygiene and, and stuff like that. That's obviously not the case anymore, at least for the United States military. 
And so, yeah, it's, it's much more an erasing of identity thing. And also it's super gendered because mm -hmm. female soldiers for their boot camp don't have to do that. I think they have to, like, get their hair cut to a certain length. But it's like, well, if they don't have to... And obviously it's also racist because there are certain hairstyles like after after everything's buzzed or, you know, whatever, that you can't have, including braids, cornrows, twists, or locks. I wonder what predominantly community this is against, yeah. you know, and on the military's website. <laughs> which I did look up. <laughs> How the they... one time. <laughs> <laughs> I know, I'm like, this better not ruin my Google search history. <laughs> it's going to, like, bring up all... Now I'm going to get ads. <laughs> oh, this is the sacrifice I make for the podcast. <laughs> um, but it mentioned professional uh, hairstyles. Uh, of course. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I uh, love that word. Interestingly, though... People in the U.S. military may wear a hijab, turban, or under-turban, sadly, in matching camouflage pattern. Oh, no. <laughs> but it's still allowed, which yeah. is quite interesting, I think. I wonder if it's because of religious protection clauses. Yeah. Yeah. Probably, yes. I don't think that they are just doing it out of the goodness <laughs> of their heart. <laughs> Uh, but yeah, so I was kind of thinking about that and like thinking about Gail and as we have been since book one, you know, reading him as an indigenous boy, mm -hmm. like him having to have his head shaved and what that could mean. Finnick having to have his hair shaved. I mean, we don't know 100% for certain that he did. Maybe it would have been a similar thing to Katniss, like... We need you to look like <laughs> the Victor Panem knows. Yeah. But if he did, his body has been so policed and so used to imagine him just having to have his head shaved for the principle of the matter. You know, mm. it's just like, it's also very grating to me to think about. Yeah. Um, and like, yeah, like hair can be very significant for different cultures and hair types and things like that and just thinking about that being completely erased by district 13 yeah and our military for the most part <laughs> mm -hmm. yeah great point and then the other thing i was thinking about is this great line that Katniss is thinking, which is, if a spat with Delhi can reduce him to arguing with himself, he's got no business learning how to assemble a gun. Mm hmm Which is accurate. Yes. <laughs> so I was thinking about gun laws. Or lack States. thereof. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So currently, under federal law... It does require background checks to be conducted whenever a person attempts to buy a gun from a licensed gun dealer in the United States. And that's every sale, right? Of course. <laughs> the problem <laughs> here is that it doesn't require background checks 
for guns sold by unlicensed sellers, which are like non-dealers who sell guns online or at gun shows. Mm -hmm. And so having that loophole enables people with violent crime convictions, with domestic abuse or rape or hate crime reports filed against them, or people with restraining orders to be able to just buy a gun, and also people with mental illness that, you know, with a mental illness that would pose a risk to themselves or others. Mm -hmm. And... A 2015 survey found that nearly a quarter of Americans, about 22%, who acquired a firearms in the two years prior to the study, so 2013, 2014, did so without a background check. Hmm. And so that's, you know, almost a quarter is a lot of people. Yeah, especially considering we're a nation that has more guns than people. And we have a lot of people. (laughs) Right? Yes, exactly. And so many people use these different online gun sale websites Mm -hmm. to just get a gun, which is terrifying. Um, Luckily, you know, there are a lot of states that do require background checks or permits that require background checks to purchase guns, even online. But there's more states that don't doesn't surprise me (laughs) so yeah i was just thinking about PETA in this situation because he would fall into both has done violent things Mm -hmm. i mean obviously it was because of this hijacking but he could have killed katniss Mm -hmm. right and also just very mentally unwell and he's got plenty of his own trauma even before he was hijacked right exactly it's like it is just so irresponsible it is so terrifying it is so disappointing that district 13 would allow him to even handle a gun Mm -hmm. even be near them because Yeah, it's not only if you're going to use them against someone else, but it's also if you're going to use them against yourself, you know? And we've talked about his depression and possible suicidal ideation, and that was before the recent torture and hijacking. And he's been through two games, and he was abused before as a child growing up, you know? And it's just like... And he's isolated, because so isolated. even when he gets put into this team, they don't trust him actively. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And his family was killed. Yeah. Like, he just, he is in such a vulnerable place. He is in such a unwell place. And to teach him how to assemble a gun and shoot it, like, that is severe negligence. Yeah. And... That just reminds me of the United States. Yeah. <laughs> yes, absolutely. I guess some things don't change in the future. <laughs> this is future North America. Yeah. <laughs> not to say that background checks are a panacea. Uh, of course not. Because, you know, I think that too often the prevalence of gun violence in the United States is blamed on mental health 
mm-hmm. in ways that I think are ableist and way too simplified and that don't also engage with just the fact that guns are really easy to get and that we have a culture that is so gun obsessed that mm-hmm. uh, even though there are other s- nations that have similar populations, similar cultures, similar economic statuses, like similar similarities with the United States, no one has the same amount of gun violence that we have. Mm-hmm. Oh, and let's definitely not talk about the gender breakdown of gun violence yeah no kidding (laughs) yeah well i mean that's the thing it's like background checks would be the lowest standard (laughs) we could possibly have i'm in favor of just removing them (laughs) altogether (laughs) so yes guns equal bad yeah, yeah. So I hope that everyone was as lifted up from that <laughs> section as we were. Always are. Yes, absolutely. So why don't we go into our wonderments? What do you have? What was on my mind this chapter was what the strategy for the invasion of the capital is. Mm. Now, this is sparked in part by the idea of wanting to limit damage, but also just tactically how they plan on gaining territory and infiltrating a lived-in city that is not only lived in but is booby-trapped to the extent that it is it's just such a uh, a quagmire good word thank you yeah it just makes you think you know if there are this many pods and things around would it be simpler to cut a straight line through rather than this kind of wider sweep but then does that lave open flanks and the ability to go yeah you know have things around you exactly uh it's just such a unique tactical situation that yeah i just i'm curious as to what those high level strategy meetings are looking like Mm. yeah definitely what about you what are you wondering I was wondering about these pods in the capital mm-hmm. and if they are, I don't know, like leftovers from any games mm. or were experiments leading up to different games and, and they perfected certain things before and they just like didn't want to waste them. And so they're like, well, we might as well do this in case one, we're ever invaded or two, we ever want to attack our own capital citizens exactly i mean of course they they would do it but i just i wonder kind of what the process of those things getting there was were some of these things created by game makers in training or Mm -hmm. you know something maybe some really sad university class it's like they combine game make people training to be game makers with people in like the science departments you know to like collaborate to create some horrible violent mud no i'm sure yeah you know and so i just kind of wonder what that process was like as well as i wonder do the capital citizens know that these pods are there when they're being installed right like is it purposefully veiled from them or is it purposefully shown to them (laughs) you know it's one or the other it's like people 
in our society probably feel bad when they knock over a lamp. People in the capital <laughs> might lock, knock over a lamp and then all of a sudden be shredded. No, I think they have to be activated, but still. Maybe. <laughs> <laughs> but it, it would make you not put a toe out of line, right? Totally. If you're seeing yeah. those things uh, be installed. Yeah, and, and maybe they would be told that's oh just in case but like i don't it's it's hard to imagine that the capital would legitimize any idea of a threat even if this was done 10 years ago you know for some of these and so you would think that the threat would have to be secretive and well like it, the threat would be capital citizens themselves right mm. so that they know that they would be a target if they do anything wrong yeah but uh, i don't know but it also could be that they did it covertly you know in the middle of the night or you know whatever <laughs> not the middle of the night let's face it a lot of capital <laughs> people are up then at like 5 a.m yeah or just kick them out of their house for a bit that's true <laughs> yeah very or it's just done during the games and nobody's paying attention anyway there you go. yeah hmm. what do we move into our last section which is intentions what is your intention what are you taking with you from this conversation or the chapter so my intention is to read the chapters ahead a little bit more intentionally than I have in the past. Frankly, this last section of this book is the part of all the books that I've felt least connected to mm -hmm. in my readings. And I think a lot of that is because this is a shift to a kind of war book. And if you can't kill people yourself, you just don't care. Exactly. Absolutely. I just feel so envious of everyone who's involved. <laughs> uh, no, like, it's just something that, like, it's not what I come to the Hunger Games for. Um, totally. So, yeah, I really want to kind of slow down my read and in particular to pay attention to what this invasion of the capital tells us about the capital and, and kind of where the subtle world building that Collins is so good at shows up in these chapters mm. and then yeah to to really keep track of Peta's experiences here as someone who we aren't in his head the way we are with Katniss and yet he is also experiencing some radical changes and to pay more attention to to what that journey is like for him um as we go through mm. what about you what's your intention yeah I was thinking about the pine needles and this mm. really personal, really thoughtful gift that Katniss made literally just by stripping pine needles off of a tree and using these bandages to create a little sensory experience for her that she can hold on to as she's not there i mean she's been her roommate for a few weeks mm -hmm. as she's probably going to be in the hospital for a while as she's having these terrible flashbacks come to her and she has nothing from home you know yeah. and it's just so considerate and so thoughtful and I love little acts of kindness <laughs> and thoughtfulness like that. And, you know, gifts don't need to have a ton of capitalism involved to be meaningful or joy-giving. And even though that is my stance, I don't always... I mean, not that it's like, oh, I'm going and buying people gifts from Walmart or something like that. You weren't at Target's <laughs> Black Friday sale? 
<laughs> no, generally with gifts that I do give, I, you know, if it's a book, it's going to be from Bromance yeah. because... Our local independent bookseller. Yes, and also, I mean, one, because it's a local independent bookseller, but also because the one here in the city that we live in actually during Japanese incarceration took bandloads of books to Manzanar for the Japanese incarcerated there and mm -hmm. like were even sometimes shot at you know and I'm just like okay you have a great legacy <laughs> I will support you forever thank you um and also you know individual sellers uh, artists and things like that like I try to do that as much as I can yeah um when I do buy things but I think that there is also something very nice about making something, you know, with your hands, mm -hmm. um, if, if you can. And I don't, I can't always do that because I don't have a lot of energy. But yeah, I think trying to figure out a way, like, I have all of these like little things saved in case I ever can, you know, it's like I have ideas of doing those. But yeah, I would, I would like to try to figure out a way to actually implement some of those sometimes. Mm -hmm. um, because I think it's really nice. Yeah, that is nice. You know, one great gift for your loved ones is making them a patron of <laughs> Geek Between the Lines. <laughs> Become a patron in their name. <laughs> <laughs> Well, on that note... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we should probably talk about what's next. So what's happening next time on The Hunger Games? So we are going to be reading chapter 19, where the Star Squad gets a new party game. Woo! All right. <laughs> well, thank you all so much for listening to this week's episode of Geek Between the Lines. You can find links to our website, our social media, and our Patreon in the episode description. For friends and family. Yes, exactly. <laughs> Spread that link around. We want to thank Kimberly Kuniko at Lacelet for designing our logo. You can find her designs at lacelet.com, Instagram, or Patreon. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next week. Until then, geek, geek out! out.